0: naked and unashamed naked and unashamed was the condition that we were made to be in that's we were made to be with god and to be with one another but we trespassed we trespassed against the limits that the Lord had sent, and instead of naked and unashamed, we became hidden and ashamed and shaming one another. And we walked away from God out into darkness. That's the world that we live in now. Darkness and shame. Shame. But in Christ, the seed that was promised to crush the serpent, the one who would make a way back to the tree of life. In Christ, God came to redeem us out of darkness and back into light to heal our shame, to remove our guilt, to stop our shaming of one another through his own sacrifice of love. And that's the new life that we have now in Christ Jesus. And so that we who once, now walk, once were in darkness and now in light will come to God and rest again with him and walk with him remade to be naked and unashamed with him forever glory. That's a way to tell the story of the Bible. Maybe you've heard that term before, the story of the Bible, the idea that All of scripture breathed out by God actually tells a narrative of God's own salvation. One way you could talk about it is creation, fall, redemption, consummation, the way that we were made, the way we become, the way we've become, the way that Christ would make us and the way that we will be. The story of the Bible. And that's the context that I want us to have for the sermon today. We have many contexts. We've been walking through the book of Ephesians together, learning what it is to walk as Christians. We have our own contexts, the lives that we live, the things that are in our minds, the things that are in our hearts, the things we've done, the things we haven't done, what we're feeling as we come here today. Those are our contexts. But be aware of the context of all of history, of all that God is doing, that we were made we were made to love one another in the light of God. And instead, we've come to hurt one another in darkness. And yet God in his love has come to shine on us that we would love again. And he will shine on us. And there will be love. That is the context I want us to have in mind as we enter into our sermon text today. I'm resisting the whole temptation to preach on Genesis because it was a beautiful passage, right? But what we're going to do, we're going to go to Ephesians. We're going to continue in Ephesians. It's Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. And if you have a Bible, you can open that up with me. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under some chairs. There's some in the back. We welcome you to take those with you. It is not on page 2. Flip towards the back of the Bible, then flip some pages up. and It will be in the book of Ephesians chapter 5. Hear this word of the Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a sacrifice, an offering, a fragrant offering to God. But, Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. So let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed, that become it exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light, and therefore it says. Awake, O oh sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Our Lord, our rock, our redeemer, our friend. Amen. Amen. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Well, that's quite a calling, right? I mean, imagine a father teaching his child how to walk or to ride a bike, right? You can imagine the child sort of struggling on the bike or walking. And what is, what is the father going to do potentially, right? They're going to look right at the child, they're going to be right before them, and say, Come on, follow me. Do, do what daddy does. Do what daddy does. I may have done this some, in some ways. <laughs> okay? Do what daddy does. Follow, follow me. Be imitators of God. God is asking us to follow him, to do what he does in Christ. So what's needed for an example like that? Well, obviously, you need the parent and the child, Right, it's not. God is our Father in Christ Jesus, and so we are His children, found and adopted by Christ Jesus to be children of God. It is right to call God, who made all things, Father. But else, but what else? What else would we need? And there's a lot of things that we could talk about. But there's two things that I primarily want us to flesh out here through this sermon. You need two things. You need love, and you need light. You need love, and you need light. Why am I drawing those things out? Look at the verses we may love. Verse 1, we're called to be beloved children. You are beloved children, Paul says to the church. And later then, he calls us to walk in love. Love is needed. In what way? We, we need to trust that what we're imitating is good, right? That the one calling us to imitate him loves us, And that the thing he's calling us to do is for us, is a good thing. I'm teaching my child how to walk. I trust, right? if I was the child, that my father has something good for me to do. And so I go through the sometimes frustrating, sometimes even painful process of following him. Because I know that he loves me. And that it's in that love that he's telling me what to do. So love is needed. But what else do you need? You need light. Well, we see that here. Verse, going down to verse 8. Walk as children of the light. Not only children of the light, he calls us light itself. Light is needed. And what do I mean? I mean, you have to see who you're following, right? (laughs) I mean, if there was a voice in the darkness telling you, do what I do, and you didn't see, it'd be rather difficult, Right? It's part of what God has come in Christ to be light of the world so that we might see Him. We know God through Jesus, Jesus by His Spirit in the church and through the Word. But it's not only that we have to see, and this is something I'm going to want to draw out for us it's not only that we have to see God, um, we need to be seen. We need to be seen. We need to be in the light. If I am trying to guide my child, I do need to be able to see him or her to know what she's doing, right? She needs to be able to see herself and see where she's going, to know where to put her limbs or where to do this or where to go. And if there's multiple of us, we have to see one another so that we can actually be of help to one another. We have to be seen, otherwise it's not going to work. And that's what God calls us to do in Christ. We're learning how to love by the love of Christ, in the light of Christ. And we're going to do so honestly by being seen by one another. And there's a lot of things that we could talk about in this this passage, but that's the main thing that I'm going to want us to draw out from us as we walk through this. That in imitating God, following Christ, this walk of sanctification unto glory the glory of being naked and unashamed again before God, we need to be seen. So we're going to talk about love and light. Let's start with love. As I pointed out in the beginning, this starts with calling us beloved children, calling us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. I mean, this corroborates so much through Scripture, right? For in this way, God loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Think of the cover verse on your, uh, on your, what do we call this? Worship bulletin, thank you. <laughs> on your bulletin today, right? The life that we now live in the flesh, we live for the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Right. Even earlier in Ephesians, talking about that we were in darkness, but God... This is back in chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, has made a way in Jesus Christ. The absolute testimony of Scripture and the evidence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we hear that Scripture is that God loves us. God loves us. And it's because of that love that he has come in Christ to make a way for us to love him and love one another. The restoration of love is rooted in the fact that God loved us. We love because he first loved us, as it says, right? And he calls us to love, love one another as I have loved you, God says in Christ in the Gospel of John. But But look at where Paul goes here. Verse 3, but, but, (laughs) so there's something that's going to be different about what he's talking about here. But, verse 3, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. He is pitting these things against love. He's pitting these things against love. The things that he is naming in here immorality, impurity, covetousness, idolatry, in the mind of God are opposite of love. There's a lot of things that we could talk about here. I wanna, we have the benefit of being rooted in traditions here within the church. And some of our forefathers wrote certain standards called the Westminster Standards. And sometimes we don't know what's being talked about here. Like, what is, it, what is immorality? What is too far? What is covetousness? What does that mean? Sometimes we just don't know the term. Sometimes we don't want to know the term because we don't want to know actually what's being asked of us. And I am struck by how thorough some of our forefathers in the faith were in laying these out. So let me, let me read this to you. This is from the larger catechism and this is defining what is meant by these terms here, that I'm kind of grouping together under sexual morality and covetousness. Okay? Sexual morality by the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. What duties are required? Well, the opposite of sexual morality then would be chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior. The preservation of it in ourselves and in others. Watchfulness over the eyes and in all our senses. Temperance keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those who have not the gift of constancy, conjugal love and cohabitation, diligent labor in all our con, cunning, call, excuse me, callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanliness and resisting temptations thereunto." Well, so what is sexual morality then? what's forbidden? Besides the neglect of those duties, preserving ourselves and one another, adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications. They didn't have the internet, but that would be included. The listening thereunto, they didn't have Spotify, that would be potentially included, depending on what you're listening to. Wanton, looks, impudent or light behavior, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful or dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of brothels, the restoring of them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, Idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness either in ourselves or others. It's helpfully thorough though, right? As much as I can feel really weighty, we do need to know what these things mean, right? We didn't even know what these things mean. And it's a covetousness. Covetousness, we might just actually not know that term. That covet essentially means greed. Right? Jealous greed wanting. Right? That's in the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, or thy neighbor's wife, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And it's interesting, what are the duties require? The full contentment of our own condition in such a charitable frame of mind with our whole soul toward our neighbor, as that all our inward motions and affections toward him tend unto and further all the good which is my neighbor's." Right? And forbidden, essentially, is the opposite. The discontentment of our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor together with all inordinate motions and affections toward anything that is his. I'm struck by the, the fact that one, they put the duties required of these laws first. It's not just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but we need to know that, right? But it's also do these things. The don't do this essentially amount to harming yourself and your neighbor and the society in which you live and the positives are loving yourself and your neighbor and the society in which you live by seeking their good. And I think, especially in light of Genesis, one way to summarize what the apostle is talking about here in verses 3 through 6 that is so thoroughly put by the Westminster divines is the word grasping. We grasped for what was not given to us We took the fruit and we ate it, being deceived, being told that maybe God doesn't have your best interests. Maybe it'd be a lot better if you actually ate the fruit. Do you know those whispers of temptation? Remember, folks, this is to the church. Okay, We are not out here to badmouth the world around us. Paul is talking to the church, the saints assembled. You are plenty susceptible to the temptations of the world and the flesh. And they whisper to us against the boundaries that God has given us to grasp. To grasp after what is our neighbors. To grasp after more money. To grasp after more meaning. To grasp after even after other people's bodies or our own in our minds and in our hands. Grasping is the opposite of love. And that's why Paul says, do not be deceived, for against these things the wrath of God is coming. And we could do a whole thing on the wrath of God, but let me say this, and even in light of the father and the child imagery, why would there be wrath if I'm talking about the love of God. Well, if I love my child and I'm calling them to walk after me and you come and grasp after my child to cause her harm and to pull her away from me, my love for my daughter is going to be as wrath unto you, isn't it? God is not pleased with the deception caused to his people, whether from us or from others. And so it is part of the good news that the wrath of God is coming against all these things that grasp after one another instead of causing love, that perpetuate darkness instead of light. That's why he says don't be partners with them. Don't be partners with these things. They lure you, I know. They lure us. But don't be partners with them. For all that glitters is not gold. And the tent of the tempter goes down to Sheol. That is the grave. (laughs) And we know that because grasping after these things like sexuality, money, they make you very content once they have that, don't you? No, you you want you grasp, more, you grasp 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 more until you find yourself unable to do otherwise. God is trying to restore us and his wrath is coming against these things. That is why he is moving us. That is why he is against them. And that's why he calls us to consider, to not even name these things among you. They don't fit you. You've been forgiven. You're identified in Christ as the beloved. These things don't fit you. They have no place, like something you used to wear back in the '80s that you found out it just doesn't work anymore. It's a lot more serious than that, but that's just for came to mind. <laughs> OK? It doesn't fit. It's not becoming. And he says, rather, rather look to Christ as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's how the apostles describe the love of Christ, not grasping, but giving up of himself. I mean, what's the opposite of grasping after something? Holding on to something in the darkness as I try to find my way around and take hold of something to give myself a security. What? It's to give myself up to give myself up. That's what God is doing in Christ. He gives himself up and that's love. We look to Christ with thanksgiving and fidelity. He also goes on and talks about light. He didn't just tell us to walk in love. He tells us to walk as children of the light comparing it to the darkness Because you don't just grasp in the darkness, do you? Trying to find your way around, trying to find a footing, trying to hold on to things to give yourself meaning. No, we, we also hide in the darkness, don't we? We hide in the darkness. Did you notice the first thing that Adam and Eve did back in the garden? When they knew that they were naked, they hid. They hid from God. We hide from God, and he calls us out of that to discern him and to be in the light, right? Because there's nothing fruitful in the light, right? The fruit of light, the unfruitful works of darkness, the things that God wants to do among us and is accomplishing through Jesus Christ cannot be done without seeing and being seen. Otherwise, it is like a plant under a basket. It's not going to grow. But Christ is light. And so let me work out a few things here. God has to see us, and he does. So God is light. I mean, some of you maybe have heard Psalm 139. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, right? But what else does he talk about in there? If I go anywhere, if I send to the heavens, you are there. If I go down to the depths of the earth, you are there. If I go over here, if I go over there, you are there. Even if I go into darkness, even you are there. For the darkness is light to you. There is no darkness, John testifies. There is no darkness in God. There is no real hiding. God did not actually have to ask, where are you? <laughs> right? Right? There is no hiding in God. There is no darkness. He sees us. He is light. But we need to see ourselves too, right? It's not not just that God has come to see us in this exposing light. But we need to see ourselves. I mean, try walking in the pitch black. I went caving once. There is no light in there. And it is very disorienting to think that I could be in a totally open room with plenty of space, or there could be a chasm right in front of me, and I have no idea whatsoever. We have to see ourselves. We have to be honest about ourselves. (laughs) We have to acknowledge where we are in order to actually walk. We can go around admitting or not admitting that we don't know where we are, but it usually just makes us more lost, doesn't it? We have to take sober account. We have to see ourselves and acknowledge where we are. But even more, we have to be seen by others. I talked about this last time. These are corporate plural yous. They are y'alls in our translation, okay? These are y'all. Y'all are children of the light, not childs. Individual and separate, children, a family, a group together that I am addressing as the church, you are children of light walking together with Christ. And if we're going to walk together, we need to see one another, and we need to be seen by one another. We need to see one another to love, right? We don't hide from one another. We think we can, because we don't view one another as omniscient as God does, even if, you know, we might acknowledge that we kind of hide in our minds, but we can hide from one another in how we speak and what we come to and what we don't come to. But that's actually part of the remaking, sanctifying work that God is doing that Paul is exhorting us unto. And so can you tell it what the spirit is getting at here? And I'm going to summarize it right now in the word honesty, honesty. I want us to work out what it means to be seen by one another. Honesty is letting this exposing light work. Honesty is how we let ourselves be seen in the light by God and by one another. We have to practice honesty. Intangible ways, just as we practice imitating God, exposing the works of darkness, practicing love and not grasping, practicing walking in the light as beloved children. So, how do we practice honesty? I want to point out a few possible ways in light of what we're talking about. First question Do you really confess your sins? Do you really confess your sins? You may confess them to God, in your mind or out loud, the tears on your bed, and that is good. Okay, God calls us to honesty with him. The psalmist gives us ways to be honest with him. And it is God who forgives sins. So please have that in mind before I get into what I'm about to talk about and confessing to one another. It is God alone who forgives sins. But it is also God who calls us to confess to one another. What is he saying? Paul, earlier in, in Philippians, or later, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. He even touches on these things. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is Philippians 2, verse 12. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling and questioning, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Shining as lights in the world comes through working out our salvation. This is not a question about efficacy. This is a question about obedience and experience. To work out our salvation is, in confessing to one another the things that we know that God knows already. Because He is saving us, we can bear testimony through the honesty of our actions and our failures and our sins. James puts it this way, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed, that you may be healed, that you may experience in your body and your soul the actual realization of the salvation that is promised to you. David puts it this way in Psalm 32, when I was silent, my bones wasted away because of my groaning all the day long. And then I confessed my sins, and you heard me, and you forgave me, right? You could say that, but do you know what that feels like? I promise you that the experience of it, the experience and realization of the healing, is commensurate with how honest you are with one another. To say, I'm struggling with lust, is very different when you receive a forgiveness, then naming very honestly the particular things that just happened the past week that are weighing on you, which is why you're now euphemistically saying you're struggling with lust. As an RUF minister, (laughs) this was a common thing to bring home. And when the real things that we do and experience are brought to the light, they are brought to healing and freshness in the forgiveness of God. And then we can bear testimony through our love of one another in the midst of our sins because Jesus Christ has forgiven us as a pleasing sacrifice. We are light to one another and to the world. So will you confess your sins to one another? You could come do that to pastors and to elders. You could do that with someone trusted. I encourage you to think of things that are more one-on-one. This is not necessarily accountability where you share with one another your shortcomings, but that you just name honestly and soberly, premeditatively. I've heard of people doing triangles, A confessed to B, B confessed to C, C confesses to A. There's a number of things that we could talk about, but I want to bring that question to you. Do you confess your sins to one another that you may be healed, that you may know the exposing light of Jesus? But another question, do you, can you name your desires to one another? Can you name your honest feelings? This is both on you and the people around you, right? Because of what Christ has done, there is, we should have no surprises that we are sinners. You cannot receive the gospel of Jesus Christ that he came to save sinners unless we can acknowledge that you are sinners right so it should be no surprise of us so are we okay to name the fact that we are inclined to sinful things that we have questions about our attractions about our desires around sexuality around money do we create spaces in our homes and in our small groups and our relationships where someone would be okay to name i think i think i'm feeling this or I don't know about this. Do we listen? Do we cause people to hide? I know I just said earlier, do not even name these things among you as is proper among the saints. And I'm not encouraging us to just Engage in filthiness and foolish talking and crude joking, which are out of place, right? To just go about naming all sorts of rampant things that we hear in the culture around. I'm talking to be honest about our own hearts. To be honest about our own hearts. And so do you create a safe space in the way that you speak to one another? Because Christ is the security. And then lastly, another question Do you share your days, right? I mean, not everything that Christ is exposing is sin or even inclination to sin that we're doing. Do we just share our days? Do we bear testimony to one another? I have this image around the dinner table. Do you share your days? Do you ask questions of your roommates, of your spouses, of your friends, of your children? Are you willing to answer honestly about the things that happen? And let me be sober for a moment that that does address the things that we're talking about. For as much as we need to be honest about our own sins, we also need to be honest about sins that are committed to us. Remember, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The first question that God had, who told you that? We have been sinned against as much as we sin. Hurt people hurt people. And much of the sins I submit to you in our own lives are the result of festering ruins of other people's sins committed against us. And if we cannot be honest about the ways that we have been hurt, we may also find it difficult to be honest about the ways that we hurt others. And that's especially important, parents, with your children. Kids, be honest with your parents about things that happen in your day. Tell them what happened at school, what you learned, all those good things. Okay. But also be honest about the people you talk to, and the people you associate with. Parents, ask the questions. Too many of us know what it is for terrible things like this to happen in darkness. I'm not trying to advocate us to be fearful or overly protective, but to be honest so that we can be healed, so that we can be healed. We practice, (laughs) and that's the place of testimony, right? Right? How much of the psalms are naming that God saved me from this or from that? The honesty of these places is where we have the fodder to bear testimony to God to be full of thanksgiving. Now all of this sounds a little vulnerable, doesn't it? It is. It is vulnerable. Exposure Is necessarily vulnerable. And that's good news. Hear hear this good news. Paul talks about this in Romans. Christ will expose everything. Everything that is hidden will be exposed. That's what Paul says in my gospel on that day when Jesus will reveal the secrets of men. Now, that, does that sound like good news to you? Probably, it probably doesn't. Why? Because exposure connotes unprotected, insecure, lost, humiliated, left to die. If we are exposed in the light of God, he will see everything, even things that we do not see, and he will, we will be afraid, and we will hide, or we will deny it, and he will get us. So says the serpent. But remember who it is who shines. It's Christ. Christ who says he did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to lay his life down as a ransom for many. His mission was to save. His purpose was to go out and find you in darkness. And then his very worth was to replace himself with you and give himself up. There is nothing then to fear by acknowledging the work of Christ. He took all our sin and fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, an effectual sacrifice, not a potentially effectual sacrifice, not a maybe if I'm really good sacrifice, but himself a loving, full sacrifice to take our sin and its guilt and its shame and its hurt. He is the seed that crushed Satan's head. He is the one who moves the angel to make a way back to God. He is the one that restores us to his presence that we might walk with him in peace and security, naked and unashamed. He is the glory that will expose you And so if you acknowledge him for who he is, you do not have anything to fear. What then could separate you from the love of God? He is the one who shines. He is the one who will resurrect you from the ground. And so my question finally to us then is this, what will his light reveal when he shines on you? I am stating that as a fact to you. Your belief does not make it so. One day the trumpet will sound, and Christ will appear, and all nations of the earth will wail on account of him, even those who pierced him. And we will all be before the judgment seat of God. And it is good news, especially those to whose hurt has been hidden, for they will be vindicated. Do not, do not think of this only as you are transgressors. Many through century have been oppressed and abused. And God said, I will hear the cry of the poor. And that's why he's going to bring it to light. But I submit to you, then what will he see when he shines on you? Will you be one who hid or boasted in your sin and denied that the light was coming? Will you continue in darkness to perpetuate hurt and grasp after yourselves and others in woundedness, in pride? God says he will come to banish that wickedness. Do not be partakers of them. For you will be, you will be seen for what you are. And if you are attached to your sin, you will be burned away with it, I guarantee you. And that for the good of those who love Him, who were hurt. Because if then you come to God, even in your filthiness and the immorality and you repent, to turn from it and turn to Him. You will see the great thunder and the banner of armies is but a lamb who was slain, one who is gentle and lowly of heart, who shines on you for your healing, to vindicate you, to restore you, to heal you by his wounds, to glorify and beautify you in the light where what you are is not your sin, but what you were made to be where all that was broken has been fixed. That's what God says in Revelation. Behold, I am making all things new. God wants that light to shine on you. God will make that light to shine on you. Will you accept it? Will you embrace it and be exposed? Participate in it now with one another. Let us pray. Lord, move us, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. Make us ready for the day. Let us cast off all the works of darkness and put on light Let us be honest about all our sin, about the ways that we have been hurt. Expose us, Lord, that you who is gentle and ready to save might glorify us in your light. Such is your gospel. Make it true to us now and forevermore. I pray in the power of your spirit and in your name. Amen. Amen.